take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. For those of you who are visiting with us, we are in the midst of a study through Luke's Gospel week by week and portion by portion. Uh, and this week we are in Luke chapter 6, and we'll be studying verses 27 through 36 as we learn from the Lord what it means to love our enemies. Today, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, studying through the end of verse 36. You can find that on page 862 of our church Bibles. And now before we come together to read the Lord's Word, let us go again before Him in prayer. Please pray with me. O Lord of glory, Lord of grace, God of covenant steadfast love, we come to you. You who have loved us from before the foundations of the world and called the people to be your own possession, though we did not know you, and though we were yet sinners and enemies of the cross, we thank you that you have called us and in your love redeemed us to be your people. And so we pray as we come to your word, you would teach us what your love has done in our hearts. Pray that you would teach us what it is to love with the same character of the Lord that we have been given by the Holy Spirit. And if there are any here who do not know your love and have not responded in faith as you work in them by your Spirit, we pray that you would call them to yourself, gather all your elect people out of the four corners of the world, that we together would be one body glorifying you in spirit and in truth and calling out to Christ Jesus our Savior through the work of your Spirit, we pray in his name. Amen. Here now as we read God's word, as we find it in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you that here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be, son you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. You may recall that uh, several times, at least twice, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was asked to summarize what true religion was all about. It happened once toward the end of his ministry, and the question came from a lawyer who stood up to test him in the temple, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? It happened also in the middle of his ministry. We'd 
find it in Luke chapter 10, when again he was put to the test, another lawyer stood up, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And they were both, both of those questions, though testing Jesus, were aiming at one point, what does it mean to boil down the duty of man toward God and man, the one precept or one principle, if we could do it? I think we understand that, that impulse to summarize and to itemize. This is what we do anytime we face something that seems bigger than we can deal with. This is why every January the internet is full of a slew of articles that tell you that you can keep that resolution and lose that weight, and all you have to do is keep these two simple rules. It's really quite easy, they'll tell us. That's why people are always so interested in what are the three top stocks that Warren Buffett says new investors should buy into because we think if we can boil things down to something small and something manageable, then maybe it makes a bigger task seem much easier. That's why people are interested in these things. And here we have the lawyers in these two uh, passages that I've cited. These lawyers who took all of God's law and reduced it already to 613 individual commands and precepts and prohibitions. And of course, they want something a little more manageable. And so their talk amongst themselves was always about which was the greatest and how do we summarize and where do we really zero in to what is most important. And they come to Jesus with the same question that kept them busy thinking and discussing all the time. How do we summarize this law of God? How do we boil down the duty of man? Now their problem when they came to Jesus is that when Jesus summarizes the law, he actually makes it bigger and more difficult than it may seem by taking all 613 commandments ad serium. Jesus actually makes the law seem more impossible than we thought it was before. You remember the answers. The greatest commandment in the law, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And by the way, the second is like it. It is that you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's how Jesus summarized the law of God and the duty of man. Love the Lord and love your neighbor, and on these two commandments hangs all of the law and all of the prophets. But if you understand what Jesus is calling you to in those two commandments, this is not something that's more manageable, is it? Jesus puts his finger on our failure, and it's humbling when we consider even these two commandments. Who can say among us, that they have loved the Lord their God with singular burning devotion, forsaking all others, seeking after Him with all of their being and might and strength and intellect. Who can say such a thing? Who can say that they have always responded in compassion when their neighbor was in need? We can examine our lives and say that approaching the law of God from the viewpoint of love makes it much harder pill to swallow. So when Jesus spoke of love, he's exposing our inability to pull just a little bit harder on our spiritual bootstraps and to work and to love our way into the grace of God. Perhaps nowhere in the New Testament is that more clear than in the passage that we've just read. Here again is a call 
to love, but this time not a call to love, just the God who has made us and who takes care of us, to whom we owe all allegiance and obedience and every breath that is in our lungs. Here is a call not just to love those who are kind to you and who are like you and who are with you and who agree you with you. Here is a call to love even those who hate you and use you and curse you on account of the Lord Jesus Christ and your faith in him. And Jesus is saying that true Christian love includes love for enemies. Jesus' disciples must love their enemies, not because that's how we get into God's grace, but because this is how God has brought us in with the same kind of love that grabbed us while we were outside, while we were enemies. And our Father was kind to the ungrateful and to the evil, and now the children of God are called to love like their Father. So Christian love includes your enemies. I want to deal with this passage today in four points, this idea of what is true Christian love and what does it have to do with our enemies. And we're going to proceed uh, first by seeing who it is that Christian love pursues. And secondly, two things that Christian love refuses. And finally, we will see what Christian love displays. Who Christian love pursues, what it refuses, and what it displays. Well, first, we could say that Christian love pursues the unlovely. The command in verse 27 could not be more clear. Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And it shows up again just as clearly in verse 35, love your enemies. There is on one level, in one sense, nothing complicated about it. Grammatically, it's very simple. There is a verb, love. There is an object, your enemies. And there's nothing in between, no, no high-minded modifiers, no loopholes to get out of what Jesus is actually saying. It's very simple, very clear, and yet perhaps there is no other commandment in the New Testament so repugnant to fallen human nature as this one, that you should love those who do not love you in return, and perhaps never will love you in return. This is nothing new. This is completely backwards. Just like last week, we looked at these benedictions that the Lord pronounced, and they were upside down from the value system of the world. Who are those who are blessed? Who are those uh, who are facing woe and cursing in the world? And it was backwards. So it is here. This is completely backwards from everything that our impulses and our instincts tell us. 400 years before Jesus, all the Greek philosophers are talking and debating, and already it was established, said Lysias, uh, one of the Greek orators. He said, I consider it established that one should do harm to one's enemies and be of service to one's friends. That makes sense, humanly speaking. That's how empires are built. That's, that's how cultures are preserved. That's how you look out for your interests and your investments and your safety in the world. You draw a circle around yourself and you include all those who are like you, all those who are with you, all those who are sympathetic with you, and you draw them near and you keep everybody else far outside of that circle. The same impulse was among the people of God, Israel, at the time of Christ. And by the time of Christ, they had found some, some scriptural basis for it, and so they would go around quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, which tells them, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. And invariably, when this passage was quoted, the emphasis fell on brother of your people, your neighbor, your brother, those who are close. And it left open a way of interpreting this passage that said, okay, well, Israelites, the brothers of my people, the sons, the neighbors who who are like me and who are with me, I have to love them, but everybody else, it's fair game for, for grudges and mistreatment. And so when Jesus taught this same principle in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, speaking to Jews, he had to begin his statement by saying, you have heard that it was said. Here's the message going around the Judean countryside. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was the interpretation. You shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but anybody else, well, that's okay. And Jesus had to begin there. That was the message, that the whole world fit into one of those categories. You were either neighbor or you were enemy. You were either Jew or you were Gentile. You were either inside or you were outside, lovely or unlovable. And it went further. Because depending on how fastidiously you you kept to your Judaism, you could perhaps draw that circle even a little more tightly around you and your cohort. And so you would find sometimes that there were devout Pharisees who had no time for the Sadducees and wanted nothing to do with them and would despitefully use them any chance they would get. And you would find one sect arguing against another sect and these people within Judaism arguing against those people and maligning one another. And there were the Essenes, the group of Uh, of those radical separatists who went out and lived in the desert. And they had a saying, and the saying was, you shall love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. And by sons of darkness, what they actually meant was anyone, Jew or Gentile, who wasn't an Essene. And so you draw the circle as tightly as you can, and you love your neighbor, but you hate your enemy. And this is part of what Jesus means when he tells his disciples that they must love their enemies. He's calling them to the kind of supernatural love that goes beyond the natural borders that we like to set up around ourselves. The kind of natural affinity that is comfortable for us. The people who are like us, the people who are with us, those who are our neighbors and the sons of our brothers, and we draw it tightly. Maybe we draw it tightly around Protestantism or, or Presbyterianism or, or our ethnicity or our heritage or whatever we might do. We draw this line to keep the outsiders out and the insiders in. And part of what Jesus is saying is love goes beyond those borders and boundaries. But then Jesus was also telling these people that there would be real, literal enemies, those who actually hate them, not just people who are not like them, but people who dislike them. They must love their enemies as well. Don't forget the context. Verse 22, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man, this is what's going to happen. Not everybody is going to think that you are the best thing since sliced matzah because you're following Jesus Christ. And what are you supposed to do when persecution and hatred shows up on your doorstep because of who you follow? What do you do for those who exclude you and curse your name as evil on account of your following Jesus? What do you do? You love those people, Jesus said. You're going to have enemies. In this world, you will face many afflictions. If they hated me, they will hate you as well. And when they come and they hate you and they use you and they're your enemies, you love them. 
Christians in that situation are to pursue their enemies and to pursue their persecutors with love for Jesus' sake. I want you to notice how active this kind of love is. Jesus is not just talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling that goes away after you've had dessert. This is love that is active. This is love that is pushing and pursuing and going after those who are abusing you and enemies of you. Love is the the will to pursue the good of the other person and to seek blessing rather than harm. And that's what Jesus is calling his people to. And he says, so there are people who hate you. What should you do? Well, you do good to them. There are people who harbor uh, animosity against you in their heart. And what you should do for them is is not just ignore them, not just try to brush it off and think that it doesn't matter, but, but pursue them. Go actively after finding out what their needs are and how you can care for them and find some way to serve them, to go out of your way and do good to those outwardly in ways that are identifiable and seen and felt. Do good to those who hate you in their hearts. What about people who curse you with their mouths? What about those people who go around spouting outlandish things about you and gossiping about you behind your back? And you're tempted to take the advice of your second grade teacher. Well, I can't think of anything good to say, so I just won't say anything at all. And that's not the standard that Jesus has. Jesus' standard is find something good to say about them. Bless them. There is an equal and opposite reaction here. Again, just like we saw last week, there is, uh, there is this action to find something nice to say about them, to speak well of those who rub your name and your reputation in the dirt and bless with your mouth those who curse you with theirs. This is Jesus' standard, this active pursuing love. What about people who abuse you? This is maybe the hardest. The King James translation of this line, you, you may remember well. Them that spite, despitefully use you, pray for those who despitefully use you. This is the person who treats you like trash, and they know they're treating you like trash. This is not an accident. This is somebody going out of their way to abuse you and to harm you and to make you suffer, and this is malice of forethought. And what do you do for that person, says Jesus? You pray for them. You pray for their good. You take your case to the Lord and you say, would you do something with this? Pray for their good. Love them for their good. That the Lord would use this for conviction and repentance and faith and life. That the Lord would draw them in. That your enemies, those that are using you, would somehow be caught hold by God's love for them as well. Jesus says, you actively love those who've harmed you by praying for them. Many of you remember uh, Corey Ten Boom and her book, The Hiding Place. And in that book, she chronicles the way that she and her family were taken uh, and thrown into the Nazi prison camps in Ravensbrück, uh, and they were turned in because they and their family in Holland had harbored some Jews. And they were turned in to the SS by one of their neighbors, somebody in their town, somebody that they knew. So the troops came, and they took away the Jews, and they took away her family, and they took away Corey. And she tells in that book how she used to be obsessed with evil thoughts toward the man who turned them in. She used to lay awake in bed with evil thoughts, hating this man in her heart, wishing him harm. And that continued until her sister Betsy came and said, Corey, we've got to pray for him. Could you imagine a more unlovely person to pray for? 
you imagine praying for the person who had turned them in for doing something noble and just and true? Could you imagine praying for him while he was still out there, still free, still enjoying life, and her family had been taken away, and they were living and dying and squalor and filth and flea-infested barracks in the, uh, the concentration camps? Could you imagine praying for that man? Could you imagine a more unlovely person to be called to pray for and to love your enemy? I bet that most of us don't have enemies like Corey Ten Boom had enemies. Your enemies might amount to the other mother who snubs you for playdates. It might be the coworker who talks about you behind your back and is always talking about your performance, and they go around talking about how you're just such a screw-up all the time. Your enemy might be that brother-in-law who makes a point at every single family gathering of telling you just how stupid he thinks all that Jesus stuff is, by the way, and when are you going to come off it already? Most of us don't have enemies like Corey Ten Boom had enemies. But then again, maybe you do. It's the reality, isn't it? Maybe you've got an enemy under whose hand you've suffered, and maybe somebody under whose hand you're still suffering. It's changed your life, and it's gnawing at you. And you wonder day in and day out, what do you do with this person? How do you deal with this situation? How can you process what's happened? How can you get beyond this thing? And how can you, you turn these, these thoughts, these destructive thoughts in your mind? How do you move forward? And Jesus says you begin by loving them and you do good to them. You do good to them if you can. You bless them if you have the chance. You pray for them if nothing else. Christian love is like that. It pursues the unlovely. Now, I, I don't want to go forward without saying another word on, on this particular topic. And as I was thinking this week about how to, to deal with this, I came across the words of Phil Riken. He says it far better than I could, so I'd ask your forgiveness for a long quote here. But here's what Phil Riken says. He says, It seems significant that we are called to pray for our abusers rather than to do good to them. Some forms of abuse, especially physical and sexual violence, are too dangerous to endure. And in such cases, we have a God-given responsibility to protect and preserve life, including our own. We need to be wise in our response to evil, and there are times when loving our enemies, including in severe cases within our families, means praying for them at a distance. We must continue to pray because there is no form of hostility that excuses us from Christ's command to love our enemies. Folks, it is a sinful shame when someone very close becomes an abuser and an enemy, when someone even in the home becomes that enemy. And we ought to lament that, and if it is in our power and we know about that, we ought to seek justice, and we ought to seek safety for the least of these. And yet... We want to be wise, and we want to preserve life, but we're called to love our enemies in a capacity that does not continue to perpetuate the sin, because that's what Christian love does. It pursues the unlovely. It loves the enemy. Now, we've got to, we've got to cover some more ground a little bit more quickly than we have thus far, uh, and that brings us to our next two points here. We've seen what Christian love pursues, and that means that we're ready to consider what Christian love refuses. And again, two things. First, Christian love refuses to seek revenge. 
Christian love refuses to seek revenge. Now, maybe I'm not the only one in the room that was raised with that earthy sort of wisdom that says you never start a fight, but if someone else starts a fight, you make sure to finish it. Maybe I'm not the only one in the room whose father set them down on their lap or close by sometime in middle school and said, if anybody ever hits you, what you need to do to deal with that is to hit them back so hard that they wouldn't dream of coming against you ever again. That's the wisdom of the world. That's what we learn. That's how we get by in the world. That's how we protect ourselves. And maybe that's how you teach your boys in the world. But that's what the world does. It's not that you go through life looking for trouble, but you certainly can't allow yourself to be a doormat. You can't let people walk all over you. And that, that attitude, that approach in life, on the playground, it's a small thing. It becomes a tussle. In the cities, it becomes the gang mentality. On the highway, it becomes road rage. And in our court system, all day long, it is 100,000 superfluous lawsuits when people are trying to get even and then some. Because the wisdom of the world says, if someone wrongs me, they're going to get it back 10 times. But that's not the standard that the Lord gives his disciples. Take a look, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. The one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, I want you to make sure you don't miss the force of what Jesus is saying. Over the centuries, this has become sort of just proverbial wisdom, and we tuck it away, and oh, that's nice, and it's almost sort of poetic the way that it comes out, but Jesus is not talking about light afflictions here. In verse 29, the word that most of our translations translate as cheek actually is jaw. This is not a slap. This is a sucker punch. And he's saying if somebody strikes you on the jaw, punches you, violence toward you, what's the attitude? Will you turn the other cheek? You offer them the other also. And the words there that it's talking about the cloak and the tunic, this is talking about the outer garment and, and even the inner garment, that someone would rob you blind and naked, Jesus is saying. These are serious afflictions. And Jesus is calling his disciples to love their enemies even to the point of suffering violence and theft and the loss of all things rather than asserting your individual rights to safety and prosperity. And again, this is not talking about how we care for those who are the least of these, who are under our care. Uh, there's no virtue in allowing those who are weak to be abused. But Jesus is, is talking to individuals, suffering individual harm from individual enemies, and he's saying that the love and the wisdom of God's kingdom is seen in love that refuses to seek revenge. Love that refuses to go through life asking, what can I gain from this? How can I get back against that person? How can I be repaid for all of these wrongs? How can they be set right? The love of the kingdom is love that is freed from the endless treadmill of self-preservation. That's what it is. That's why we react in this way. I've got to stay afloat. I've got to keep moving. I've got to protect myself. And Jesus says, you're free from all that. Your life and your possessions and all the things that you have and all your status in the world, you're free to hold it with an open hand because you believe that there's more to life than these things that you can see and feel. It's love that refuses to seek revenge. But we have to ask, where does love like that come from? If the natural inclination is to react and to get revenge, where does love like that come from? Where do we learn 
to value our enemies as worthy of compassion? Is that the desire that's deep down inside of your natural heart? As you search yourself, as you think about those people who come against you, you just say, you know, actually, I, I naturally am inclined to treat those who hate me with love and compassion and kindness. That's, that's the bent of my inner person. Of course not. And no philosopher and no teacher, even though they interact with these ideas, no, no teacher or rabbi up to the time of Jesus ever attained to exactly what Jesus is saying. This is not a natural wisdom. This is not something we find in the world. There are lots of people who deal with, with aphorisms and maxims, kind of like the one that we see in verse 31. Jesus says that it's known as the golden rule, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Lots of teachers almost got there, but the closest they ever got was a negative statement. Here's how Rabbi Hillel put it. He said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. There's the pinnacle of human wisdom. Don't do things you hate to people you like. That's as far as it got. This is not something that we come up with. Jesus' rule is different. Do what you wish others would do to you and make that the rule for everybody. Whether they're inside, whether they're outside, regardless of whether they've wronged you or harmed you or spoken against your name. And the question here is not, do you wish someone would let you off the hook and let you malign them and abuse them? This is not the idea, but the idea is that when you have wronged someone and maligned them, you become aware of it. What grace and compassion do you wish others would show toward you? Not to ignore the fault, but to forgive and to cover an offense with love. What, what compassion do you wish someone else would give to you in your moment of need? As you wish others would do to you, do so to them. This is not the ethic of our sinful flesh. Paul diagnoses our flesh in Titus chapter 3. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That is our natural wisdom. Envy and malice and hatred, or we could say trying to get even and trying to get ahead and trying to get revenge. But Jesus says disciples ought not to love like this. Christian love refuses to seek revenge. Christian love also refuses to settle for reciprocity. That's a big word, but it's the right word. Because this is the standard that, uh, that rules the unbeliever, says Jesus. It's love that looks like any other financial transaction. There's a little bit of give, there's a little bit of take, and everybody gets to move forward all together. And Jesus says there are people all over the world who love to love those people who love them back. There are people all over the world who do good to those who do good to them, who lend to anybody they know who can repay them. They're called banks. There's nothing virtuous in thinking that you're a bank, and yet there are many people who see some small virtue in their lives, and they puff out their chest, and they say, look at what good I'm doing. Look at how generous I am. Look at all the people that I love. But where is the benefit in loving like that? Again, in an earthly sense, there's a lot of benefit in loving like that. If you're living in a world that is only the things that you can see, there's all the benefit in the world in loving like that. That's how society moves forward. That's why we don't leave this sanctuary every week and go into a world that resembles something like the barbarian hordes descending upon Rome. That principle of 
of being kind to one another and loving those who will love us in a sort of reciprocity. That's a good thing in its naturalistic sense. That's why you can be worshiping here and not worried that your next-door neighbor is robbing you blind while you're singing a hymn. This is why you can ask your unbelieving uh, family member to show up at your kid's birthday and you know that they'll be there with a smile and a present because this is how we interact in society. There's a natural affection in that. And Jesus is not saying that there's anything wrong in these natural affections. He's not telling believers, now you've got to stop loving your spouse and your parent and your children and all those who have this natural affinity. There's nothing wrong with that. But he is saying the kind of natural human affection that settles only for loving those who are like us, who agree with us, and who will love us in return. That is not the kind of love that puts the gospel on display. It is a purely natural love that is attainable by purely natural sinners in their purely natural pursuit of a purely natural happiness. There's nothing redemptive in that kind of love. There's nothing that speaks of the mercy of God for hell-deserving sinners in that kind of love, the kind of love that settles for reciprocity, and I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. Jesus says the love of his disciples ought to rise above that. How on earth can you manage to do that? It's not the inclination of your heart. It's not what our sinful flesh desires, and so in a sense, you can't. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you can't do this in one sense. You can't just pull a little harder and try a little bit more and love a little bit deeper and dig a little further and work your way into this kind of love. And yet there is a sense in which all true believers can do this. And you do it the same way that you do everything else in your Christian life. You do it by walking by faith and not by sight. You do it as the Holy Spirit is working His influence into your life. You do it as the Spirit of Christ is at work in you. And the faith that is able to love like this is faith that grows from the seed of the Holy Spirit at work. There's a dividing line here between the believer and the unbeliever. This is a question of what do you believe about what God is saying? Because we can read these passages, and one person will read them, and it says, love your enemies, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And there are some people who will read that, and they'll say, that's crazy. If I love people and lend to people and give to people and do good to people, expecting nothing in return, do you know what I'm going to get? Nothing. Because this life is all there is. And how foolish would it be to love like that, to give it all away for the sake of who knows who's going to pay me back and I'll be a pauper and I'll have nothing and I'll have no way to be repaid and it's charity for the sake of somebody that I don't even know or care about. It's ridiculous. It is love within natural humanistic affections. But there is another person who reads this, who reads this command in verse 35 and believes the promise of God. The promise of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the believer reads this and, and realizes that there is a promise here that there is something beyond what you can see with your eyes, that there is a whole world of blessing in the presence of the only God who can repay all the years that the locust has eaten. That's the promise. 
And the Lord says, give it all up, give it away, don't hold on to it with your clenched fist, seeking what you can gain, and I will pay back more than you can imagine. It's not just exchanging one repayment for another repayment. The Lord promises a blessing and a benefit, but the blessing and the benefit is being with him and being like him. There is is a blessing and a reward that comes along with it, but that's not why we do it. I wish I had written it down, and now I can't remember it, but C.S. Lewis, you can look it up uh, in The Four Loves. He talks about what you would think about a person who marries for money. And he would say that person is mercenary. Who marries for money? What a terribly debased thing to do, that you would go through all this, and it should be love, and you're doing it just to get repaid. But what about the person who marries for love? Oh, that's a, a noble thing, isn't it? What a virtuous thing. That's the right reason to marry, we would say. Well, they're getting something back, aren't they? They're getting repaid by that marriage, and they're getting love. You say, yeah, but that's, that's the right reward to go after. Well, so it is here. And the Lord says that give and lend and love, and your reward will be great. And it's not just exchanging one payback for another. It's seeking the Lord who rewards those who seek him. And this is the spirit at work in the life of the believer. This is where true Christian love comes from. Because the Lord is working within us. It's love that pursues the unlovely. It's love that refuses revenge and reciprocity. It's love that reaches beyond the circles of hatred and and enmity and natural affection that we're so inclined to build around us. And this is a love that comes from God at work in the lives of his people. And this brings us to our final point. What Christian love displays. Christian love displays the mercy of God. This is the climax that Jesus' teaching has been moving toward the entire time. Picking up in verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. One of the aspects of parenting that Sarah and I find simultaneously exciting and terrifying is the way that we're watching our children grow and we're seeing them turn into miniature versions of ourselves. That's a good thing. That's that's what you expect. There There is the tree and there's the apple and there's the expected proximity thereof when it falls and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, But you expect that, and sometimes we see that in our children, and sometimes it's a turn of phrase uh, that just doesn't sound quite right on a six-year-old's lips. Sometimes it's a wacky sense of humor, and sometimes uh, it is the deepest picture of my sin that I have seen anywhere on display, and it makes me wince and shudder. But this is a good thing in a sense. This this natural family resemblance, and for better or for worse, that's what you expect from your children. And Jesus is saying one of the best things about true Christian love is that it displays the Father's character in the children. It shows what God is like. There's a family resemblance to the God who loved us first. You see, the truth is that the kind of love that pursues enemies The kind of love that loves the outsider, that overcomes evil with good, is repulsive to our sinful human sensibilities. And yet this is the love that all true Christians have learned from their father. Because this is the love that made them children in the first place. And this is the love that sent the son at the right time. When was the right time to send the son? 
Romans 5 tells us that it was while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, at the right time, God sent the Son, and he proved his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus came, and they hated him, and they spat upon him, and they struck him in the jaw, and they stripped him of his robe and his tunic. And they tore his flesh with whips and they led him outside of the city to die a sinner's death. And as he hung there, we find only in Luke's gospel, he prayed for them. He sought to bless them. He sought to do good to them. Even though they were his enemies, even though they hated him, even though they spitefully mistreated him, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. He prayed and he trusted that the Lord would be true to his promise that out of the anguish of his soul, the righteous one would make many to become righteous. And it was love. It wasn't the kind of love that waits to be loved. It wasn't the kind of love that, that goes and, and seeks to advance an agenda. It was love that reaches into the depths of the grave to raise up enemies and to call them friends and beloved. And if you're a child of God, this is the love that has rescued you. It's love that overcame your evil with good and love that called you near and spoke peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And if you are a child of God, this is the kind of love that God is calling forth in your life because it's the kind of love that he gives. And it's the kind of love that we're supposed to have that shows forth his mercy in the world. And so uh, who is it? You've been sitting here now for 40 minutes listening to me go on and there's somebody in your mind. Who is it? that the Lord is pressing in, that does not deserve to be loved, and yet whom the Lord is pressing in your heart to be treated like a friend rather than an enemy. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's some elected official, and normally on your lips their name sounds like a curse word. Maybe it's somebody in your home. It's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody who doesn't look very much like you, or maybe it's somebody who's sitting in this room. And the Lord is calling his children to have a love that includes their enemies. Because that's the love that looks like his love for you. And so Jesus says to his disciples, be merciful as your father is merciful. And his Christian love includes your enemies. Please join me in prayer. O Lord of grace and covenant love, we thank you that you did not withhold your son but gave him up for us while we were yet your enemies and sinners in your presence. You sent him forth out of love uh, to redeem your fallen creatures, your elect from all the corners of the world and from all nations and tongues and tribes and peoples. We thank you that we love because you have first loved us. It is not in ourselves. We can't work our way to you with this kind of love but you have worked your way to us through it and through him who you have given. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would work love in us. We pray that you would expose to us those ones that we are tempted to hate in return, to return enmity for enmity and strife for strife. O oh Lord, we pray that you would calm our spirits before you and remind us that there is far more than what we can see in this world and what we want to hold on to so dearly. And so free us by your love for us to love those who are our enemies.
Keep us, O Lord, looking to you. Perform this work in us for the sake of your name and for the glory of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.